Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adensasser. I am a former film major, current Jewish film podcaster, and joining me as always is my co-host, Daniel Zana. All right, Harry, thanks for the intro. My name is Daniel Zana. I'm a documentary filmmaker, a video editor, and a father, much like the two fathers we have in our film today, The Exorcist. We have two guests today. They are the director and writer-producer of the new film, The Offering, out now in theaters and on VOD. Oliver Park and Hank Hoffman, welcome to Jews on Film. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Hello. Hello. It's good to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you here uh, to discuss, like I said, the Exorcist from 1973, directed by William Friedkin. Really exciting, spooky film. I got to tell you, I, I watched a lot of horror films over the last like week, and I'm like scared, but also very excited to talk about both films with you all today. Um, very different films, but also a lot of similarities. Harry, how are you holding up? Are you shaking in your boots over there? <laughs> It's scary, right? I mean, but scary between stuff. these two, between yeah. we, we just did the vigil recently, it's been a lot of horror lately. There's also been, you know, I guess shout out to the horror that's out in theaters right now. I just saw, I just came from Megan this week, which honestly wasn't wasn't nearly as scary as the other couple of films that we've been watching. But uh, but good time for horror in January. So uh, it's fun to be doing Jewish horror film. You know, one of the few that really exists. We chose uh, we chose this movie to discuss with you all. Um, and we chose it because your new movie, The Offering, is coming out. So we wanted to kind of ask you a little bit about that film. Uh, what kind of drew you to making like a Jewish horror film? This is all on Hank. This came from Hank's mind. Uh, what drew me to do it? Uh, I would say it's a, a bunch of factors. First of all, Jewish mysticism. I'm a huge fan. Mysticism and horror, they fit like a glove. Um, also, when you look at the body of literature in Judaism and demonology inside of Judaism, it is like ripe with IP. There's so much free intellectual property that is just waiting. It's 3,000 years. It's sitting there waiting to be turned into really exciting uh, stories. And not just horror, by the way. You can do a whole range of genres pulling from the Torah. And so what drew me to do a horror film was a couple factors. Uh, first of all, I felt like we could subvert the genre. And anytime you can look into the horror genre and find a fresh way to play with it, uh, it's exciting as a writer. And also, I had another motive here, which was I, I felt like there's a dearth of misrepresentation of Hasidim. Uh, the, the problem when you're making a Jewish film, whether you like it or not, is it becomes political instantly. And... I spent a lot of introspection on that because I'm like, why, why does my film have to be political? I don't want to be political. I just want to tell a really fun story. And the reason it's political is because there's so little out there that explores Hasidim that whether you like it or not, you're kind of forced to represent the general audience's now perception of this very small subculture in America. And so what drew me to speak pick Hasidim is I felt like they had a, they didn't get a fair shake in the way they'd been represented. The The common perception is that they're chauvinists. The common perception is that Hasidim are cruel. The common perception is anyone inside of a Hasidic community is in a cult and needs to escape. And that the idea of why anyone uh, would stay is unimaginable. So it's always about, oh, you're in a Hasidic community, maybe one day you'll escape, is kind of like the general perception, not why would you stay? So I I wanted to not defy the previous stories that have been made in our in our culture, 
you know, in the media. I think people have had, you know, horrific experiences and wanted to share their personal stories about what they experienced in the Hasidic community. So I'm not, I'm not out to, to really defy or insult what they went through, but I felt we had to round it out. We had to also show like, Hey guys, this is like, these are like freak occurrences. Let's, let's explore Hasidim for what they really are, which are hilarious, chutzpahdik, audacious, loving, poetic, mystical, kind of eccentric characters. And after our film came out, what was great to see is that a lot of comments people made is they said, you know, the Hasidic characters were the most fun in the movie. And I went, thank you. I agree. They are hilarious. They are complicated. They follow uh, different different cultural norms, and yet they're still very relatable. Um, so in the design principle of making the film, I said, we got to make characters that love their wives. All the characters in this movie love their wives, and they are burdened by the loss of their wives. Our main character, Yossel, he goes too far into the esoteric to bring back his wife who's passed on. You got Saul who says, what is a man without his wife? So these this ethos was really important to put into a horror film. And so what inspired me really is twofold. One is I knew we could subvert the genre by doing a reverse exorcism, which is why I love we're talking about the exorcist today. Exorcist is they got a demon in a body. How the heck do we get it out? And our film culminates in uh, how do we get this demon back in a body so we can trap it? So total. So when you're subverting a trope, it's always very exciting. And then when you're able to use horror as 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 a means to not just scare people, but to also explore characters that have never been explored before, the combination was a very exciting cocktail that I I you know it was hard not to want to see if we can make it. Yeah, I, I loved a lot what you were saying. I mean, it really matches, you know, aligns with my experience watching the movie and just delighting. And I think that representation, you know, the, the kind of character work you were describing, you know, I just thought of Hamish, who I, I loved him as a character because he did two things. You know, he was a little bit of like, you know, a scummy guy, but in a way that A, was genuinely, I thought, you know, like moving and he just he felt like a real person. But, but also, you know, we don't even the representation doesn't need to be a sort of tokenized, like, look, they're real people. Like, he just felt like a real guy. He was, you know, I was on his side some of the time he was annoyed and he was just, uh, you know, I, I thought it was just a real, you know, depth and representation. And, and you reminded me of, you know, a line that I actually wrote down watching the movie where, you know, you, you have someone say, uh, you know, we're a very misunderstood people. It's it's the burden of investing so much internal, like so much an in internal meeting, which I first of all, I thought was, you know, a great way of looking at it, you know, and something that maybe to a fault I hadn't considered, you know, just how much, you know, internal, you know, protection. And we, we've spoken about this with a lot of our meaning that it's it's inherently, an in, you know, an insular pursuit trying to, you know, in a very tradition and past bound, you know, system of just, you know, being involved in a religion, because you need to kind of cling to the past in a way that we found many of our, uh, our movies explore. But I, I love the way you talked about that there. And I guess I wanted to follow up and just ask you, you know, did you find that you were doing with this movie a little bit of what was said in that line, which is sort of investing into that internal past of the film, into that meaning and kind of how am I going to teach you about these people by drawing a little bit into their past and, you know, the demonology and all of that, that, like you said, exists in the Torah itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other thing also is if you're going to make a Jewish movie, you should use a Jewish structure. And the Jewish structure is not is not a classic structure. If you look at Torah structure, it it has a seeming... It's hard to find the through lines. It's fine. It's hard to find thematic consistency when you're reading any of the tales. But then if someone says, hey, 
let me let me show you what's underneath the hood. You realize, oh my God, there's a whole Kabbalistic mystical infrastructure that's dictating all the mythological choices that are being made. And you realize, wow, this is actually quite structured. And so I think the whole Jewish philosophy in general is that Jews are supposed to study the Torah because they're developing the skill for how to interpret the story of life. A healthy person interprets their own personal story, their own personal mythology of their own life. If you don't interpret it well, you have a healthy mindset. If you don't know how to interpret well, a lot of people go to therapy where they learn, where they try to reframe their own personal narrative and reinterpret really the cast of people in their lives. And so Torah has this apparent chaos and injustice and inconsistency and randomness in in the design of its narrative. But then when you study at a deeper level, you realize, oh, there is a coherent artistic design at the core of this. So too with life, that when you develop these, these kind of skill sets, you can find um, a deeper design. And so this film also has a certain kaleidoscope quality of dealing with POVs and dealing with structure that opens just like the Talmud would open with a rabbi doing something you don't understand and then a rab or a rabbi and we did both by the way or then a rabbi giving a speech or giving a quote and get throwing out some esoteric idea where you can't make heads or tails over it and you go I don't know if you're nuts or brilliant and then you start dissecting it Talmudically in a way where you're equally kind of confused, but you start to feel like, you know what? I feel like there's something here. There's something to this, this Rubik's cube that if I can just start assembling it and applying a little bit of three-dimensional thinking, things can start to come to light. And so to Ollie's credit, Ollie used to say when we were developing the script, he said, be confident, you can bury things. Have the confidence to bury certain certain things that otherwise people might want to just hit people in the nose with. He's like, just bury it and people will feel it. And so there's all these subliminal elements that are woven into this story that allow you to feel. And hopefully, if you want to really geek out and dig into it, there's all this midrashic literature that's woven into it that oh, yeah. we couldn't actually just fit in dialogue. And so these are, the, these are kind of the design principles that govern this film that excited me. And I need to say this because we're talking horror. The scariest story in the Bible is the sacrificing of Isaac. Yeah, talk. yeah. And there is nothing scarier than, okay, hey guys, I'm going to start a community. I'm going to open my tent up. I'm Abraham, right? And I'm going to invite everyone over. I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to make the hip most hippiest like, community ever, like a revolution. In those days, everyone was like murdering, raping, pillaging. And some guys like, hey, you want to come over for dinner? It's like, but I don't know you. We're strangers. That's scary. And he's like, nah, my tent's open. It's like, really? But aren't you? Nah, come on over. We're going to make a meal. And everyone's like, wow, this guy, Abraham, he's awesome. He's so loving. Like, I didn't know that someone could be so embracing and, and represent such a level of chesed and kindness. And then a guy who's on that mission one day is like, oh, I sense God in the room. And God's like, okay, so you know this whole kindness run that you've been on? Do me a favor. I need you to kill your son. Like, can you imagine the, the like the psychological splitting that occurs? That is horrifying. And so mm -hmm. I was like, let's do a modern day binding of Isaac. Let's see if there's a way that by the end of the film, you could almost rationalize why a person may have to sacrifice themselves and not. And at the same time, be able to reconcile that perhaps it's still for the good when you're dealing with something so dark. So these are the things that kind of, you know, excited us. Light, and light stuff, you know? Um, light stuff. Yeah, exactly. I want to issue a spoiler warning now. I don't know 
what do you think? Can we spoil offering? Can we spoil Exorcist? I don't know where are we at. Like, I want to take the temperature. Well, Exorcist, of the... I hope so. But... Exorcist has been out long <laughs> enough that if you haven't seen <laughs> exactly. it, pause the podcast. Step I mean, offering maybe I'll maybe I'll let I'll, I'll kind of maybe not spoil it. But I wanted to ask you a question, Hank. I love what you were saying about like digging in, and you know, it's all about like pulling up those floorboards and finding that VHS tape of 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 it all, and 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 looking in and finding the hidden meaning. Um, Oliver, I wanted to kind of ask you a question about. Uh, your touchstones and your, you know, your horror inf- influences as like a director. What were some of the movies that you kind of watched growing up or in preparation for the offering to kind of get you into that mindset to direct a scary movie like this? Uh, okay, well, uh, uh, let me take you back to when I was three years old, <laughs> where this all began. Uh, yeah, basically, this is this is where it all began because my parents say that I wrote my first horror story when I was three because I said I didn't want to go to bed because the shadow people were going to take me away. And I have, as long as I've known, had vicious nightmares, uh, most of which I, you know, I write down as many as I can. And, you know, some of which uh, when I came on board this project, it was fantastic to talk so vulnerably with Hank because I got to tell him lots of you know my fears and see if we could kind of bake them into the script because ultimately i was there saying to hank tell me about all the scariest things that have happened to you because that's what that's the the crest that's the gem of where this idea came from and we would do the same but growing up i was obsessed with horror anything i could get my hands on and the inspiration for this movie came from every element of fear that you can imagine it came from computer games i grew up on resident evil and silent hill pt inspired some of the shots in this movie caravaggio's the binding of isaac by the way i wouldn't say this is an exorcism movie or a possession story you know we like to think of this as a binding story which there is only one binding horror movie and that's the offering so that's kind of cool But there were so many horror movies. The Exorcist was obviously one of them but long 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 way way before we got to the Exorcist there was the Golem. The Golem is you know, 1915, horror's first ever franchise, as far as we know, because there's so many lost films from that time period. But this is before even Nosferatu. There was a Jewish horror movie. They made three of them. It was the biggest horror movie in the world. It, it, the Golem inspired Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Yet, you know, the, the kind of the mainstream horror, most people go straight to the West and they talk about the universal horror monsters frankenstein dracula and things like that and we forget where all these where all these technically jewish stories actually came from when they were born from so i remember when this script landed on my desk and i was i was immediately excited by the fact that it was a jewish horror film and it carried a weight with it and i was already thinking god i hope this is good but on top of that it had the title originally abizu and Abizu is not a Jewish demon. She is a prolific creature demon thing that has just been around since the beginning. For all we know, she could be the original Lilith herself. And I was always fascinated by Abizu. So there was this Jewish horror film called Abizu. And I just thought, oh God, I'm, I'm so, I'm in before I've even read the damn thing. And then my whole thing with fear and horror is that you earn fear through your characters true stories about real trauma about real fear it is all in the character and the story itself so when i read the script and it was about grounded authentic characters in a you know a true hasidic world 
it was fascinating and i could feel the fear resonating from the characters we didn't need any quote unquote jump scares to make this thing scary this was unsettling this was real you can lift the monster out it's not about the monster it's about the fear of these characters and the sacrifices they have to go through within themselves and to others throughout the whole movie it's a return to faith this this film is about so many things and they all trace back to fear it, it's fascinating watching uh, and me not being jewish to see people who were brought up in a different area in the world to me a completely different religion faith belief system everything is completely different but fear is what binds us because we all experience fear we can relate to every one of these characters in this film whether it's a, a father losing his son a son losing his to be newborn son you know, losing his wife everyone you know a brother losing a brother it was i could just talk endlessly about the richness of the script and this is before we even got into designing it or having quote unquote fun with the you know the mainstream side of horror there were so many films we spoke about and so many inspirations for this film but i think the one that hasn't come up enough in the the interviews hank and i've spoken about so far is a serious man okay and i think that needs to be discussed sure yes so 100 percent that needs to be discussed more as well because i think that that you know hank i remember you saying that it was an enormous inspiration for you and you know when we were talking about set design and character design and just you know the atmospheric way of shooting and the lighting everything a serious man was was a huge inspiration so i was drawing from everywhere i could yeah well, and the other thing that's kind of wild is cuz you're asking about you know the relationship between horror and and in Judaism and what drove me to do it is the, the the first story in the torah the garden of eden is like a perfect horror movie set up you got two people naked in a garden. I mean, and there's a serpent that talks that's lurking inside the garden whose entire agenda is to corrupt you. I mean, is that not a template for horror? You have the dark forest. You have the mystical elements. You have a man and a woman that are trying to make sense of the confusion around them. You have temptation, you have corruption, you have consequence. I mean, these are these are wild, wild tales. And my daughter, who's 10 years old, I I started to get classic Jewish guilt. And I'm like, I'm a father. That means I should I should do some teaching. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get in bed with her for bedtime stories and I'm gonna I'm gonna share my tradition and my culture with her and I'm going to read her some midrashim, some like Jewish lore about four minutes in she started crying I'm like why are you crying now in my head I'm like she's probably crying because I'm inspiring her and she feels her like she's feeling her soul that's probably what it is yeah she's feeling her neshama this is working this is working you know 3,000 years is still working 3,000 years of stories are still elevating the soul and I said what is it and she said, this stuff is scary. And I never looked at it that way. And I went, you're right. This is really scary. And what I love about horror is that horror only works when it taps into fears that are all naturally built into us. We all have natural trauma and fear. And so when you survive a horror movie, in a weird way, you're you can be better for it. 
it kind of makes you braver. It allows you to reconcile with the unknown. The only other form of literature that attempts to reconcile with the unknown is religion. Religion is constantly trying to reconcile with the unknown. I mean, how the just the word death, which is obviously we're all scared of death. I I, I can't think of any you know, any horror movie that doesn't thrive without the threat of death. And so when characters die, you're left with this question of what was the purpose of their life now that they're dead? And so with the offering, we wanted to try to explore horror in a way that can tap into another emotion, which is tragedy. If these people are dying, yeah, it's scary, but it's also tragic. And so what's the tragedy of a Hasidic man dying specifically? And when you tap into tragedy, you, you, you're you able to no longer be doing a horror movie. I think what you're doing is you're just telling a story. And so to Ollie's credit, Ollie respects horror because he doesn't see it as a cheap gimmick. He doesn't see it as this kind of theme park ride. He sees it as a legitimate form of storytelling whose design is to explore the human condition and so when you're dealing with the con the human condition of Hasidim you're left with a lot of options and so I mean these are really the, these to me are the touchstones that really kept the energy going because this project took seven years to make and wow. that's wow. yeah I mean the, these are these are complicated issues and so yeah. I'm excited to see the reaction that people have to this. And the funny thing is, is what is the most common reaction I've gotten so far from the film is, especially from the Jewish press, they go, so let's talk about Saul touching Claire. Right. I'm like, Gosh. what? <laughs> really? You got like, you got a lot of body counts. You got all these things going on in the movie and you want to talk about a touch. It's like the touch heard from all around the world. Right. Yeah. And so I'm curious, I want to ask you guys, how did you feel as Jews when you see a Hasidic guy embracing his daughter-in-law? It wasn't something that I'd seen before. Um, you know, I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting more traditional sort of standoffish father from a religious background, not touching his not Jewish daughter-in-law. That was my expectation to, to see it was kind of different for me. Um, but yeah, Harry, I don't know. What about you? Like, I, I think from my perspective, one thing your movie does very well that, you know, we often talk about because we talk about movies on this podcast that are explicitly Jewish is just how they're received by an audience, who they're intended for. And I think this is a movie that is very, very Jewish and all the depth that you've been, you know, the offering that, that you've been talking about is, is so clearly in there. And it's making me think we're probably going to have to do another episode fully devoted to that. You know, maybe we'll bring you guys back. Maybe we'll bring in other people just to talk about your film. But um, but not only is there so much Jewishness, it also is a very clearly a movie that is doing accomplishing, I think, a lot of what you're saying about showing that to an audience that might not be as familiar that can really receive this as just a story on its own merit. So that moment specifically, I think to me is, well, if you're watching the movie without necessarily the context and, you know, that that concept of how, you know, forbidden and maybe a little bit off kilter, that moment might be for a Jewish audience, I think you still receive it as a very endearing hug and you get the context from the movie of, you know, they clearly had a rocky relationship in the past, but it's another moment that really rewards, you know, maybe a deeper Jewish understanding of that's a very, very intense moment for him. And for him to actually be willing to, to hug her like that is, uh, it just shows where these characters have gone. And I think it lends pathos 
to him as a character. So I thought it was a very powerful moment. It's also, it's interesting talking about that specific beat to people who aren't Jewish because they see it in a right. completely different way because the question I've been getting more for those who are looking closely is why is art so confused when, yeah. when you know, when he hugs her from if someone who doesn't know that side of Hasidim, of course, they're thinking, surely he should be smiling. And we did do one take where he smiled. But I think, you know, both Hank and I were for, like, delete that take. That is never being shown because that, that ruins the point. This is one tiny moment in this, you know, 93 minute movie where you can see it 25 different ways. And wherever you're from in the world, you're going to have different questions about a hug. It's, it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of like an evolved human being and it was more of like a human moment as opposed to like a religious moment for me it's like oh these people have been through pretty tough stuff before and they're trying to make amends for you know shalom bayit you know peace of the house and trying to make you know make amends and sometimes that means that you know you have to kind of adjust where your your values are at or where your head is at or where you know and kind of make compromises for the betterment of other people. So I'm all I'm all for it. The 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 touch heard around the world, as you said, Hank. It didn't bother me too much, but um, <laughs> I wanted to see if you guys could uh, pack your bags with me and join me in this context corner as a as a clumsy segue to talk about the Exorcist, if that's okay. Is that all right? Of course, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so, like I said, we're talking about the Exorcist today. Um, you know, as sort of a a, a seminal horror film came out in 1973, written uh, by William Peter Blady, uh, based on his novel, and directed by William Friedkin. And uh, I wanted to shout out the director of photography, Owen Roisman, who did like French Connection, Tootsie, and Network, because there's some really cool shots and some really cool dream sequences that, you know, Offering also has some really cool dream sequences, so I'm excited to talk about those as they come up. Um, you know, but just as far as like the context for the film, um, it, it was a crazy movie in terms of getting it made, right? So I've heard a lot of crazy production stories, but a couple that stand out is like throughout the scenes in the bedroom where our our, our possessed person is, uh, Reagan, you know, where she's kind of resting. They kept the set super icy cold to kind of get that realistic breath going. Uh, there were a lot of fires, injuries, and some crew deaths during the making of the film, which led a lot to a lot of people to believe that the film was cursed. It was a very shocking movie when it came out. I mean, lots of people were having seizures in the audience and passing out, specifically in the scene where Reagan gets her arteriogram uh, in the hospital, and you have that sort of blood squirting out from her neck. Uh, very gross stuff. And then in terms of like the success of the movie, it's the highest grossing R-rated movie of all time, the highest grossing Warner Brothers movie of all time, adjusted for inflation, of course. You know, it's got an $11 million budget in 1973 money and went on to gross over $441 million worldwide. Um, so all that being said, I want to kind of gently toss the ball over to Harry to maybe get your patented IMDb summary before we kind of jump in. Always oh, sounds great. Uh, I, I know the last couple of times you threw to me, I haven't been interrupting you with one more thought, but I'm going to bring that tradition back because okay. uh, I just, as always, but I just, I wanted to yeah, acknowledge, yeah. you know, what a lot of what Oliver, what you were saying just about the tradition of Jewish horror kind of coming, you know, even preceding, you know, whatever, a lot of the Christian horror that we are talking about. And just, I love this as an opportunity. I love your film and I love this, you know, podcast, hopefully as an opportunity to really elevate that conversation about, you know, Jewish horror. And of course, we're, we're talking about the seminal, you know, probably Catholic Christian inspired uh, horror film. But in some ways, I'm hoping we can put the two in dialogue, maybe elevate that conversation about 
you know, where these inspirations come from, how religiousness and horror, you know, not even just the beginning of film history, but, you know, like we were saying, and uh, like you were saying, Hank, just for, you know, years and years, there's, there's been so much, you know, depth and richness and uh, horrific, I guess, stories that have that have come from uh, from the Gemara and deep Judaism. And I'm, I'm very excited to talk about it. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, is my producing partner, Jonathan Younger, he says something that always makes me laugh. He said, why did the Catholics get to have all the fun? You know, what? The, I, when The Exorcist first came out, it was totally shocking. I think we're at a point where we're like, oh, another exorcism movie? It's like, we're numbed out now. It's like, how do we, yeah. how do we bring some life to it? What I'd love to see, I'm just like, I'm blue skying here for a minute, but I would love to see a movie where, because if my kid were possessed, I'm the type of person I'd hire a priest and a rabbi. I want every opinion. Wouldn't that be wild? The rabbi and the priest both like bump into each other, both holding like the suitcase, like in the exorcist with like, you know, the fog and they're both in silhouette. They just kind of bump into each other. What are you like, doing here? What are you doing here? It's like, I don't know. I got the call. And then the Can imam walks up. And yeah, exactly. Then, you, know, you got the whole, the, the whole, you got everybody. You got to be inclusive these days. You know, yeah. you want to make sure. Like, they get like triple booked and they come in. And Love now it. what happens is, is you got the frightened family and they need the savants to kind of weigh in and they start debating. Right. The three like of them very soon start arguing over like, no, you got to you got to put the cross up. No, 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 no. That cross is a big no, no. That'll bring more demons into your home. Trust me, you need a mezuzah. Yeah. And then you're right. They, they they all start just going at it. And so I think what's interesting is that really at the core, there's a theological argument that distinguishes Jewish horror from um, uh, Catholic horror. And I think that theological argument is 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 could be summed up as follows. Is God the boss or is God splitting the the rulership of of the kingdom? Is it God and Satan both competing for control or for influence? Or is God always the boss in Judaism? And then you have to reconcile if he's the boss, how the heck do you then have evil in the world? And these are wildly different approaches because one suggests that at the core, there needs to be a moral rationalization for evil to exist in the world. The Catholic thing, the Catholic approach is no, not really. You could be a real, like in the exorcist, which is in, very scary to say you can be totally innocent and you are like, you are prime for evil influence because you are much easier to control. And so, you know, these two these two ideas to me are very fascinating. The Jewish idea is God, when he created the world out of love, wanted to create beings that he could love. So there had to be this illusion of separation between the allness of existence and other beings so that they could love each other. Part of loving something is you need to allow it to have its own autonomy and its own free will. Otherwise, you've created slaves. So God gives us free will. He says, my will is all powerful, but I will withdraw my omnipotent will so you can have your own will. You can withdraw my will as much as you like. If your will is to be close to me, I can come closer to you. If your will is to push me completely out, that's up to you because you are free. I love you. I want you to have your own autonomy. If you abuse the power to withdraw my will, eventually you're going to create evil in the world. The Christian approach is just very different. It's like, no, God and the devil are at odds with each other, and you have a binary option. 
And anything you do that's bad, you point to the devil and say, well, they did it. I'm under their influence. And then I'm going to go be under God's influence. And Judaism kind of offers a third option. It's like the third option is what if it's neither? And it's really you that's always determining the quality of God's light, whether you're turning it into uh, whether you want it to be sunshine or you want it to be the darkest shadows in the world. You can determine the prism by which the light filters through. And so I think what makes Christian horror much easier is it's usually easier to say that's a good guy. That's the bad guy. Stay away from bad guy. Link up with good guy. That's how you win. In Judaism, it's like, no, you got some very complex kind of rules here. And how do you rewrite and reorient the audience to those rules in a way where they can follow the internal logistics of the narrative? And so where the exorcism, I think, really shines is that the return to faith story in a weird way justifies why evil's here, because without evil, you can't catalyze faith. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I love what you were saying also just about defining the different kinds of approaches, you know, what uh, between, you know, Judaism, Christianity, how they would approach, you know, the concept of the devil. First of all, it's, you know, if you remember Daniel, it's very in line with a lot of what JD was telling us when we were talking about his film, The Vigil, and kind of how that movie is, it's really an internal war, you know, there isn't this oppressive and, and opposing force and how that presents, like, like you're saying, just a very, uh, like a very different challenge and something that's, you know, more antagonizing as opposed to, I guess, you know, more like in your own head, which it's itself is its own very Jewish uh, idea. But um, with with all that said, I will get us into the IMDb summary. We've spoken about the film quite a bit already, but I'm hoping that we can actually go inside beat by beat and, you know, really pull out a lot of these ideas. So with that being said, I'll, I'll, I won't delay any further, Daniel, I'll jump in here and then uh, we can take it to break, but um, quick IMDb summary this week. It just covers uh, the basic outlines of the film, which honestly is is all you really need to know to get into it before you get to the real uh, internal struggles. But uh, it says, when a girl is possessed by a mysterious entity, her mother seeks the help of two priests to save her daughter. Love it. Just Just enough enough to whet the appetite and get people into the theater. Um, And uh, yeah, no, it seemed to work at the time. Very successful movie. But we'll take a quick break now. We'll come back and we'll discuss the plot of the film, The Exorcist. We'll be right back. Some stories are so profound, they transform the people who tell them. I'm Adam Langer, host of the Forward's new seven-part podcast series, Playing Anne Frank. I've been digging into library archives, interviewing actors and writers and designers to bring you a story that hasn't been told before. How the Diary of Anne Frank Change the people who brought it to Broadway, Hollywood, and the rest of the world. You can listen to Playing Anne Frank wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are discussing The Exorcist this week. And uh, Daniel, why don't you get us started on the plot? Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, this is my, uh, usually your take the first beat, so I'm, I'm honored. Harry, thank you so much. So, you know, our film starts in Iraq, uh, kind of an unlikely place where we see Catholic priest Father Lancaster Marin as part of an archaeological dig where they discover a few things, the medallion of St. Joseph and also a little statue of uh, the ancient demon Pazuzu. Uh, As Father Marin leaves Iraq to return to the U.S., he has this, uh, he discovers like a large statue of the demon kind of there and they have this sort of eerie face-off 
awesome cinematography, like I called out early with this sort of like long lens and you see these dogs fighting in the distance. And then we seemingly cut to a very unrelated scene. Back in the US, in Georgetown, we meet the actress Chris McNeil, played by Alan Burstyn. And she's there working on a film with her 12-year-old daughter, Reagan, played by... Uh, Linda Blair. Play, played by Linda Blair, yeah. And uh, so one evening, uh, Reagan, you know, showing her mother her Ouija board, uh, which Oliver, uh, for those who are on audio only, Oliver does have a mini Ouija board there, so we'll have to ask him about that in a second. Uh, Reagan shows her mother her Ouija board and says she's been talking to her friend Captain Howdy with it. Um, I think Captain Howdy sometimes answers some of the questions that she has. We also meet Georgetown-based priest Damien, Father Damien Karras, who's witnessing the film shoot, uh, and we sort of see him kind of clock um, Chris uh, in the distance as she's shooting her scene. And then we kind of follow him off, as you mentioned, Hank, earlier to visit his elderly Italian mother in New York. So he's, you know, riding the 1970s gritty subway. He's passing homeless people in, in the distance. And again, very, I, I just love the cinematography here. I'll have to call it out again. Very gritty, very 1970s, very French connection. Um, so it was cool to see that the, the cinematographer did both these films and, you know, it kind of makes sense. I think I'm going to pause here for a second, just kind of get get some takes on just the kind of opening of the film and, and our first chunk. I'll, I'll start us off by mentioning something that I thought was uh, an interesting note and, you know, maybe calling uh, on the offering already uh, pretty early. But, you know, one thing about the horror that kind of initiates this film is that it's really that opening scene we were talking about. It's it's really uncovered incidentally. I mean, you could say that maybe they were, you know, are, they were doing this dig in an area they shouldn't have and they should have let the past be the past. And, you know, I'm sure there are deeper reads there, but... The, the, the movie's explanation for it is kind of this incidental discovery and it just happens. You know, why is Reagan of all people chosen? And unless there was something I missed, you know, some sort of connection, it feels like she just, I guess, found a Ouija board, you know, kind of started talking to it and eventually was able to pull on this demon. But it's something that feels very kind of random and incidental. It's like yeah. what we were talking about where the evil is, you know, the, the sort of Christian view of the evil is just lurking out there and it's just, you know, you'll encounter it for no necessarily rhyme or reason. And I just mentioned that in context of the offering because there, there's a much more, you know, explicit, like, you know, we have that character who's literally calling on this demon to help, you know, revive his wife. It's just, it's a very different approach. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on just the way that this movie kind of explains its evil as just wrong place, wrong time. And it just found the right, like the right people. And that's how it in, starts. Uh, in the full cut, they do actually explain to a certain extent as to why her... When oh, really? midway through midway through the exorcism, uh, the exorcism at the end of the movie, uh, Marin and Karis are sitting on the stairs, and uh, they're in silence. You probably remember that moment as they're kind of taking a break through yeah, the, yeah, the, the exorcism. Exactly. But in the extended cut, there's dialogue there that uh, there was two versions. One which was short, where uh, Karis actually says to Marin, "I don't understand why her," and Marin says, "It's not about her. It's about us." It's about turning us into animals. Wow. And that in the, in the, uh, the Blatty cut, which was even longer, there, there's a longer dialogue there back and forth, which talks about kind of, it underlines the point that there is no answer. And that is the point. It isn't, it's far beyond just coincidence. Mm -hmm. And I think right. a lot of horror, I, I for one actually like, I love the fact that we never find out the answers in the Blair Witch Project. We never find out why Michael Myers murders his family when he's young. That's the point we're not supposed to know because evil, true evil doesn't have an answer. Right. If it did, it wouldn't be true evil. 
And that's part of what makes The Exorcist so compelling and so brilliant. It's not because someone did the wrong thing at the wrong time, or they just happened to live in the wrong place, or she found this Ouija board. There are no answers to evil, to true evil. It always has been, it always will be. And it's there to bring out the animal in you. That to me is the scariest thing ever. And it goes back to what Hank was saying and also the offering. Only we determine how much evil enters this realm. Right. It's already there in you. You just don't let it out. You don't even know it's there. That's why the exorcist is so scary. Yeah. Well, I think I think also what's interesting with regard to the exorcist is when you're dealing with religious horror, what you're actually dealing with is, I think, a, a pretty simple premise. And the premise is this. If you follow the rules, everything works out fine. You go to heaven, you're good. If you don't follow the rules, it's horrifying, the consequences. And so you're not allowed to play with a Ouija board. You're not like, and this isn't a Jewish law only, like, in, in 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 Christianity as well, you're you're not supposed to commune with spirits or to try to contact the dead. The thing called necromancers, right? There, there, it's always been against that. So, an innocent child playing with the Ouija board broke the rules, and when you break the rules, uh, the let's say the astral realm is a nightmarish jungle, and you invite things in. And so, to me the film in a funny way kind of contradicts itself because on one hand it's saying this girl opened a doorway by playing with a Ouija board and that brought the demon in. But then later on it's saying, no, the demon had a plan. The demon needed the girl so she could get to the priest. And I think the way you could probably reconcile the, 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 the contradiction is that the demon did not have a plan. The girl opened a portal by playing with the Ouija board and then she ended up inadvertently welcoming this evil spirit in once the evil spirit was in it was like well now that i'm here i'm i'm gonna swing for the fences get me a priest because that is a delicious act of damnation and i think that kind of is like the internal logic of the exorcist which is fantastic because what it's really saying is that the most frightening thing in the world is when those closest to god are just as capable of the darkness of those who are very far from God, meaning that we are all kind of a stone's throw away from being demonic ourselves. Even if you have an entire life in the priesthood, there is no buffer for how quickly it can all go south. And that is very true of like, I mean, I have to, I have to give them credit. That's very true of history. I mean, Germans were something that I, I never forgot. Every Jew always has like a Holocaust like lesson, like that they can't shake. And when they did the Nuremberg trials, what was most horrifying, someone once said what was most horrifying to them, I forgot who they had on the stand, but he was one of like the, the, the premium evil architects of the whole Nazi uh, killed Jew plan. And they said what was so frightening is this guy wasn't a demented sociopath. He was an extremely rational, cultured, civilized human being who underneath was one of the scariest monsters ever, which speaks to what Ollie's saying is that underneath the level of demonic presence that's in the world is, is not far. 
And COVID, our film inadvertently stumbled into a COVID metaphor because you had this idea of evil. If you don't feed evil, it ceases to exist. You actually have to feed it to sustain it. And so with the whole idea of you need to stay inside the circle and then everything's fine. But if you step outside the circle, you're going to feed the thing and it's going to it's going to continue to haunt everyone. Well, that was COVID. Stay in the circle. If you go outside the circle, you can keep feeding this virus and we're all screwed. We have to learn to stay within our our our, our ethical circles, our health circles, uh, mental health circles, et cetera. And so horror is always about stepping outside the circle and the consequences that occur. And that's, I think, where there, where there is a kind of unique relationship between the exorcist and the offering. Yeah, yeah, no question about it. I think like you you both were saying, both of these films really prey on that fact of, you know, evil kind of existing and it's just for us to, you know, play too close and tempt it. I it's really fascinating to me that The Exorcist has, and I was aware of these alternate versions, you know, I'll say the one that Daniel and I watched was on HBO and it was the one that I think is the theatrical cut, which is probably yeah. uh it would exactly have been but so. sounds right, yeah. No stereo, so and uh, yeah, and it's so interesting that like what those changes, you know, obviously anytime you see an extended edition, it makes a major change. But that question of like you know purpose and intention and and like you said, it kind of all resolves itself as this really is you know this meaningless just like evil just exists to attack you. But uh, but yeah, I, I think both these movies, and I think that this like we were talking about these questions of like. I'm trying to make it a little just, you know, connected to these Jewish ideas of like uncovering too much. You know, it reminded me when you were talking, uh, Hank, about, you know, the, you know, the book, The Zohar, which is a very mystical book that, you know, I know that there's like a deep Ashkenaz tradition that you're not even supposed to read that ever until you turn the age of 40. And there's something, you know, until you get to a certain point, you're really, you know, you're better off not investigating. And it's only when you have wisdom, responsibility, does it actually make sense to dive in? And, you know, we we find out in the movie what happens when, you know, you play with the wrong toys, especially when you're too young. So uh, with that, I'll, I'll transition us just a little bit later into the film, because I really want to get to some of the, you know, the haunting stuff and maybe even some of the questions of, uh, of belief, and, belief and faith that that come up after. So if that's cool with everyone, I think I'm going to move us towards the plot a little more. Sure. Sure. I mean, I just want to say I'm almost oh, sure. 40, Harry. So, I mean, it's, <laughs> so maybe, now's it's, the time. maybe it's time. I'm half Ashkenaz, half Sephardic, but maybe it's time for me to open up the Zohar and play with some toys, summon some demons. But before we do that, why don't you go ahead and move on? Yeah. Sure. And then, and then we can all get together and pull up the Ouija board and, you know, we can uh, we talk, can talk to, to Captain Howdy. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The Zohar and the Ouija board. So the movie continues. Chris, we see she hosts a party for her friends, and including some priests are there. And Reagan, who at this point in the film has started looking sickly and behaving a little bit strangely, comes down and urinates on the carpet. So Chris apologizes to everyone for her behavior and takes her to bed. But later that night, she hears loud noises coming from the room and investigates. And when she goes up there, she finds Reagan's bed is shaking violently and, and unnaturally. It's not just someone squirming around in bed. It's literally, you know, lifting and twisting all over the place. So... Meanwhile, we, we learn a little bit more about Father Karras. He finds out that his mother, who we, like we mentioned, he had seen earlier in the hospital, she's died and he becomes very guilt ridden with this. And like we said, that he wasn't, you know, with her that couldn't afford to put her in a better place. Um, back to Reagan, we see that, you know, at this point, this is later in the film, we've seen she's become increasingly pale and, you know, even more violent. And Chris starts to take her to a lot of doctors and labs for extensive medical testing, but they all find to find anything physically wrong with her. There's a couple of moments where people are, you know, we're sure we'll find something in her brain and ultimately they don't uh, discover anything. So they then, two doctors then come over for, or a few doctors come for a house call and they see Reagan in bed and the demon possesses her body and she literally floats into the air. And when they approach her, she throws the doctors aside with uh, inhuman strength. So 
somehow it's still not fully convinced by, you know, what is clearly unnatural. She, uh, Chris meets, or she's pretty convinced, but the doctors aren't. So she meets with more doctors and they then push her towards a psychiatrist. But when she responds, you know, understandably incredulously at this, they ask if Reagan believes in religion and, you know, reluctantly, it seems, advise her to maybe seek out an exorcism just because, you know, they say if that's something that she believes in, maybe an exorcism will convince her it's not. So that kind of gets us through those doctor scenes and then up to uh, the moments where we begin the exorcism process. But I figured we could stop here and talk about that that major section of the movie. Yeah, I mean, what I love about it is the film has a beautiful progression where she doesn't just get on a phone call to a priest. He comes over and he's like, I don't believe in God anymore. Oh, crap. There's a demon here. Okay. I better, you know, better start praying. Uh, You see the exhaustion of in the limitations of psychiatry and technology and neuroscience and shows that there is an innate frailty of human intelligence when it comes up against certain phenomena where where to the credit of the writer of the exorcist william i mean he chose to make the protagonist a very wealthy woman a a woman who is a starlet and what that allowed was a character that had access to the best of the best the best and the brightest doctors she can make a phone call and have 22 doctors at a table trying to address this issue. So it ultimately showed the, the uh, frailty of science and the futility of science when you're up against something supernatural and the humbling of our rational mind that, that the, that this, this section of the film explores opens you up to feeling or reawakening a need for a religious figurehead in your own life, because there is a point where the only call left is the priest or the clergyman or the rabbi or whoever it is to try to guide you. And so I just really love how it sets the stage for this priest to come in and, and it makes sense. There's no, there's no leaps of logic. It's a progression. And so I I really love how that was paced. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I love all, like what you're saying, I think is spot on in terms of like, Karis has almost his own subplot, you know, he's kind of jogging, he's dealing with his mother, he's working through his like guilt issues, and he's drinking with the buddy. And like, we see their stories almost existing in parallel. And only like you said, towards the end, do they kind of merge. And, you know, Chris reaches out to Karis, but you know, all throughout the beginning of the film, we're building all this tension, where Reagan and Chris are doing you know, x-rays and sonograms, MRIs, the arteriogram with the blood squirting everywhere. And then there's this uh, great hypnosis scene where one of the psychiatrists is like talking directly to the demon. And then Reagan kind of grabs the guy by the balls and like really kind of gives it to him. And yeah, it's 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 pretty shocking, I think, for the time. I think like you said, I think I, I forget, maybe it was Hank or Oliver, you know, we're pretty used to a lot of this stuff now, but considering the times back in 1973, the idea that a little 12 year old child who was new to to movies would be doing this kind of stuff to grown-ups was such a shocking idea and so and it still plays today i think for me i was still like pretty scared for a lot of these uh you know horror set pieces um but yeah one of the reasons it plays as well from a story perspective is it actually every other possession 
Um, and I suppose I, w I wouldn't necessarily call The Exorcist a Christian horror movie because I'm not quite sure I know what a Christian horror movie is, just like I wouldn't call The Offering a Jewish horror movie because I think if we're going into that, it's not a Jewish horror movie. It's a Hasidic horror movie if you're going to do that. These labels need to these labels need to draw back. We don't. No one talks about The Exorcist as a Christian horror movie. They talk about it as a possession movie or a horror movie in general. But one thing The Exorcist did that even films today aren't doing is that the lead character halfway through the movie finally gets to speak to a priest and says, "I need an exorcism," and the priest says, "No, you don't." And every other possession movie across the board, even today, still does the same thing. As soon as the priest comes in, it's like, oh, they need an exorcism. And then the exorcism act starts. Right. And that's where the exorcist stands up strong, even today, because the first thing he says. Well, the first thing I'd have to get him into a time machine and get him back to the 16th century. I didn't get you. Well, it just doesn't happen anymore, Miss McNeil. Oh, yes. Yeah, since when? Well, since we learned about mental illness, paranoia, schizophrenia. All those things they taught me at Harvard. Miss McNeil, since the day I joined the Jesuits, I've never met one priest who has performed an exorcism, not one. And right. then he visits Reagan and has this back and forth just like doctors, and it keeps the film grounded. Mm -hmm. And it really grounds the film in a reality where even, I know some people say that the kind of the makeup and the, the demon demonology and the tricks are actually quite hammy now, and they are because they're dated. Yeah. However, right. The story and the characters keep it grounded, keep it feeling it real, and it again comes back to this authenticity. You earn your fear, you earn horror, just like we pushed to do in ours, where it wasn't just this magical thing where everyone just said, "Okay, fine, there's a monster here." When Hamish comes in at the end of ours, he needs to be convinced, and that's the yeah. point. Is that now I think a lot of horror, which The Exorcist didn't do, a lot of horror nowadays just assumes, "Ah, oh, the audience will be fine; they'll go with it," and that's just. That's not the way The Exorcist does it. It's why it holds up. Karis needs convincing. And even when he sees... The, my favorite moment in The Exorcist, and Harry, I'm sorry if you've already gone past my favorite part of the movie. I don't think you've got to it just yet. But the scariest point in the whole film, and I'm not just quoting Mark Kermode when I say this, or everyone else who talks about this moment, even when Karis sees the homeless man in the subway, and he asks him, Father, would you help an old other boy? I'm a Catholic. And he hears that same voice come out of Reagan's mouth. Can you help an old older boy, Father? Your mother sit here with his cars. Would you like to leave a message? That's the only point in the movie where you know Pazuzu is real. And he, you know he knows it's real. Mm -hmm. That is right. where the true fear starts. And that's where it's grounded. Because even then he doesn't, it's, it's not enough. He really needs convincing. And there were real priests, there were real exorcists. You know, if you talk to you know, various people of faith about the exorcist, it's because they don't just buy in hook, line, and sinker. There are tests, which we don't see in many horror films. And the exorcist nails it. Also, also what the exorcist does that I really love, and I love what you said, Ollie, and to piggyback off that is it even with the the examination the father Karras does to evaluate the legitimacy of needing an exorcism, the result of his evaluation actually yields a totally ambiguous conclusion because there are two points. One is 
He splashes the holy water and she totally reacts. Then he leaves the room and goes, yeah, that was tap water. So that actually didn't prove anything. And then when he has the conversation and the demon's like, your mother sucks cocks in hell, Paris, you faithless slime. And it's such a brilliant, I think, writer choice for that subsequent beat. Of all the reactions, he remains so professional and intelligent and goes, What's my mother's maiden name? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or was it middle name? It's been a while. It was one of maiden the maiden name. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, what? what's my mother's maiden name? And the demon doesn't tell him. Then he says to the demon, he says, you know, you're so powerful. You're bound by these like straps in your arms. Why don't you free yourself? And at no point in the story does he ever reconcile these three logical escape clauses where you can still reduce it down to you know, this was just schizophrenia with huge boosts, adrenaline. And yeah. they cite adrenaline in the movie, the woman that lifted the truck because the adrenaline kicked. And so it what, what I love about it is that he, in a weird way, had to address the nature of all religious issue, which is that you will endlessly find yourself at a paradox and at ambiguity, and there is no clear-cut answer. And even at the end of the film, I'm not so sure if he really solved anything because we don't know if this thing's going to like travel to the next kid. You know, so there were a lot of sequels, but we didn't get there yet. Don't don't jump too far ahead. We want to get there. It depends on which cut of the movie you watch. Right. Right. Exactly. I'm, yeah, exactly. I'm interested to hear the, the alternative. Or if you endings, read the book. But... Oh, right. A lot of options. <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of content. But before we move on to that and before, Daniel, hopefully you take us into the next section, I just wanted to address what I think both of you, Hank and Oliver, were talking about, which is, I mean, these questions of, you know, belief, faith, skepticism are so like they're so fundamental to the way that this movie, you know, questions this exorcism. And I think all supernatural horror is inherently, you know, going to deal with faith and skepticism because it's coming from a place, right? Supernatural. It's, we live, you know, a natural life. And then when something comes in, but I think doing so in a faith movie, and I think this, you know, is hopefully part of me trying to differentiate, you know, what a, a Christian. Yeah. I wanted to ask just to say when you, because I, one of, I think one of the key things, especially with, with genre is that really trying to define the word and what its meaning is because sure. you say supernatural, when you say supernatural, do you mean unholy? Not necessarily confined to religious horror. I would include anything that involves, you know, ghosts, monsters, anything that doesn't exist in the natural world as we know it. Sci-fi? Sure. Sci-fi horror. I mean, this like this trope, this concept of someone being, you know, met with something and then just dismissing it as, oh, that must be something else because they're they're brain isn't ready to wrap their minds around something that they wouldn't you know expect for obvious reasons i think that's something that i was trying to attribute to you know many other movies deal with that i think what makes the exorcist unique in the way that in its approach to religious horror is that you know and i think you started saying this a little bit at the end hank but uh but faith religion is inherently you know faith-based and to a certain extent you know and as much as and i don't know what our mileage you know how our mileage varies the four of us on how much we believe in you know this stuff existing and how much this could happen today but you know one of the predicates of you know a faith of a religion is believing in things that you can't necessarily see believing in things that aren't real so even though they ultimately do start to see pretty clear evidence, like we said, Father Karras, you know, he continually has these crises of faith up until really, you know, those final moments at the end, because that's how we're, 
supposed to, you know, that that's how, in, as members of faith, you know, and I'll speak for myself, we're supposed to engage with the things that are, you know, unknown and, and unbelieved that, yes, we believe in them, but we never expect to see any hard proof of it. And I think that the way the movie navigates that, and that becomes this, you know, presiding question, like we've been saying, you know, throughout it's, it's this can't be real, you know, go for the exorcism, you can do it. But faith is like such an inherent part. And, and I just before I, you know, give this up, I wanted to talk about, you know, that holy water moment, because, Yes, that's a very interesting moment because he says this was tap water. Why would the demon react like this? But the demon, which as far as I think the movie is telling us is is real, it also has faith. You know, it is faith in these institutions of holy water and what that concept is. So when a priest comes and throws water at it, you know, maybe we could say that can be psychologically diagnosed as why is this demon reacting so strongly? But it also is kind of saying, oh, I'm going to trust what you're telling me. And if this is holy water it has this kind of physical reaction that mm, right. maybe it didn't need to. And it's just on all sides of the coin, you know, everyone can see what's going on, but still, you know, I think that that skepticism that they're all born with comes from their adherence to, like I've been saying, a, a faith that relies on, you know, blind faith to a certain extent. Well, I think also one could argue that the demon's reaction to the tap water could have been mm. staged because the demon wants Father Karras to wrestle with doubt and wants Father Karras to engage in this game. He's toying with him because the goal at this it, point... He's definitely a interesting. We learned yeah. that. Right, yeah. right. Good take. I like that, yeah. Well, there's, yeah, there's there's also... I mean, there's, there's there are there are lots of different opinions on the tap water, but also it depends, like, you know, it brings up the question, what is holy water? Isn't it water? Oh, you're going to tell me. I shouldn't... No, I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. I mean, you have... I mean, that's the point. It's blessed, right? We, it's blessed by, like, a priest? Is that... What I mean is that the 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 definition of holy water can mean different things to different people uh -huh. so the demon's right. definition of holy water could in fact be that that does that does burn because to the demon it was holy um but right. also to that point thank you you know completely right because i do agree with that um that you know ultimately the demon is playing this game it could be playing along it could do more you know when she's sure. when reagan or pazuzu is asked to do more she says that's far too vulgar an expression of power at this stage but don't worry you know under the under the covers don't worry yeah. you'll see more because and fundamentally i'm not sure if it is just karis that the demon is after although karis i think is the main character i think the demon is after Merrin because if it's just after karis that whole opening scene in iraq means nothing right the whole He's point the is, is that's where it starts right. and exactly yeah and she you know pazuzu's job here is to kill the one who found pazuzu right that's right. again a different way of looking at it right. but it, it depends what cut you watch how many which version of the book you which read because there's about four different versions of the book as well um it's incredible to say i mean to to bring in the offering and to to, to you know, the conversation that you were saying earlier hank you know it's all about like digging in and kind of like watching all the cuts reading the book looking at the forums online looking at the theories i feel like the fact that we're still discussing the intricacies of this movie that came out so long ago and there's so many different takes is really just like a testament to show like how great of a film it is and and there's some stuff that's like fairly straightforward, but then there's also some stuff like this tap water or, you know, the statue or why Reagan or all this, this kind of stuff that lends itself to these discussions to kind of like further the mythology of the film. And that's the point of the unknown. And actually to, to Hank's uh, credit, one of the things that, um, you know, he really pushed for in the script and uh, he and I argued, you know, on the same side of is to not answer these questions in the offering because they were obviously ultimately right. always going to be questions in the script stage. And um, we were working as hard as we could to avoid answering certain questions 
because once you answer those questions, fear is the unknown. Once you, the brain's job is to keep you alive. As soon as it knows how to fight the thing that's going to hurt you, you're no longer afraid of it. It really is that simple. So if you're able to take yeah. away that mystery, fear goes with it. You have to keep these questions unanswered. And it's great that we can all say, our opinion is this and this and this of why Pazuzu Very Talmudic, you know? Uh, 100%. Just the way you're describing fear, you know, once you know, then it goes away. I mean, and that's that's always been part of my relationship with faith, which is that it's it's an unquestioned, it's an unanswerable question that's not supposed to be answered because, you know, when when something is completely defined and you know exactly and you have all the answers in front of you, there's nothing left to believe in, right? Because then it's just there. There's no and you know, faith relies on you know this degree of I think skepticism and you know sort of blind following that I think the movie and even science does explore. Doesn't... Yeah, even so, you know, people who say, okay, so I'm an atheist, I don't believe, you know, because I believe in science, right. I believe in fact. Science doesn't prove anything, it just disproves everything else. Right. It's fascinating. Yeah. So I hate to be that guy, but can I, can I get the, uh, you know, yeah, get I'm, us, I'm, get us to the exorcism. I'll please. get you to the exorcism. I do. Oh, there's too much, there's too much to talk about, Oliver. I wanted to answer your question about sci-fi, but I feel compelled to finish the plot. Let me get through, and then we'll add it to the bonus scenes at the end. I was about to do another we'll podcast do. that just talks about horror and religion or sure. genre or Please. whatever, because this I'm, needs to be ironed out as well. People need to people need to like stop viewing horror the way they do. I mean, I, I love that. I'm, I'm thinking we should record like a six hour podcast, maybe put like an hour and a half on the feed as like the theatrical cut, and uh -huh. then just kind of loop in just new extended versions, pull Ex in another 20 exactly. minutes. Exactly. Perfect. Director's cut, podcaster's cut. Well, I mean, exactly. I was listening to a four hour podcast about Magnolia, uh, you know, on podcasts like it's 99, they review all these films that came out in 99. This was four plus hours. So it's the precedent is there. We could do it. But I'm, but that's not our but podcast. Let's move along. In the let's plot. move it exactly. along. Yeah. So uh, Chris comes home uh, one one evening, and she's surprised when the director of her film Burke, who she had asked to watch Reagan, is is not around. He's later found dead at the foot of a staircase outside of Reagan's window. Uh, she's questioned by homicide detective William Kinderman, but she has no answers. The detective later questions Father Karras while he's, you know, he's jogging, uh, confiding that Burke's body was found with its head turned around backwards. Meanwhile, Reagan's condition worsens and her body becomes covered with sores. Uh, one night, Chris hears a noise coming from Reagan's room and runs up to see what's going on. She finds the Reagan possessed, stabbing her genitals with a crucifix. And uh, to her horror, she, uh, the possessed Reagan turns her head completely backwards and speaks in Burke's voice. Do you know what she did? Oh, Your canting daughter. <laughs> uh, so Reagan traps Chris in the room before she's able to escape. I think she like moves the furniture over and she scares the hell out of her. Moving on, you know, Chris seeks out Father Karras, asking him to do the exorcism. As we mentioned before, he's kind of skeptical and he says he has to meet with Reagan to confirm she's possessed. You know, he meets Reagan a couple of times. She claims to be the devil himself she projectile she projectile vomits into father Karras's face which is originally a fun fact it was originally intended for his shirt but it completely missed i think the tube misfired and it ended up on his face and he got super pissed about that she speaks in tongue i believe they're speaking in latin to each other and then as we talked about you know she reacts violently when the tap water is sprinkled on her but father Karras claims it was holy water uh, the demon says it will remain in reagan until she is dead and still ambivalent, Father Karras nevertheless concludes that an exorcism is warranted. Father Marin, the Max von Sydow, who we met at the beginning of the film, having performed an exorcism before, is asked to join. So I will pause here. Uh, we got one more chunk to go. Is there anything 
that we haven't touched on already just about these kind of two sections? I mean, the only thing that comes to mind, and I, I wouldn't say necessarily with respect to the offering, but with respect in general to over left braining horror, when you over left brain something so that it all makes sense, like you guys are saying, it ceases to be horror. Mm -hmm. But that's not the full truth. The full truth is, is that it ceases to be art. As Edgar Allan Poe said, works with obvious meaning cease to be art. And so right. you need to throw in these things where it's not obvious because otherwise you 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 have nothing to reconcile with. You have nothing to dig deeper into. And what's the point of art if it's just treated like arithmetic? And so I think I think at this point in the story, what what I really love about the Exorcist here is that you're bringing in the expert, and the expert gives us no advice. When Father Karras asked the expert, the Max von Sado character, he says, like, pretty much, you want to give me a preamble, anything you want to teach me? He's like, no. It's like my lead. Yeah. Right. There, there's nothing to learn. I just love that this is the scene where it's like, so do you have any exposition for me? And he's like, no, why would I want to give you exposition? We're dealing with a demon. It's unexpository. And I just think that is such a good lesson in general for playing with this genre. Right. He's like, here's, do the Roman ritual, follow along, follow my lead. You know, it's very, uh, you know, uncertain about as to what's going to happen. I was just going to say one of the things that this movie does so successfully that you could never cover in a podcast like this, you know, running through the plot is just the way that it builds, like the way that it builds itself. And, you know, we spoke about this earlier, that it really takes a long time for us not only to get everyone on board for the exorcism, but even to show some of the more demonic acts. Like one of the things that actually, you know, t speaking about the uh, extended versions is that one of the most famous scenes from the film is, you know, Reagan kind of crawling down the stairs on her arms and legs, you know, backwards. And Daniel and I noticed that we did it. We were expecting that scene and neither of us saw it in the theatrical version. And one of the things that I think taking that scene out does is it just makes this a much slower build and it really increases the tension because I think from the beginning and maybe partly because I knew where this was going, I never doubted that this was a real possession. But there's a certain extent that you're watching this from the beginning and you see from that scene like again, the intangibles I'm talking about, just the way that the movie, you know, builds with, you know, the score. And we haven't even spoken about, you know, the iconic score there and like the music. Tubular bells, shout out to the song. The iconic, exactly. And the way that the movie kind of gradually gets us up to this point where I think we, we've gotten to the point in the plot where it all really comes to a head is just so atmospheric and just so intense. And and I think that's part of what makes it so scary is that, you know, it's in, it's from an emotional place. You know, it's more so than just, you know, making sense of a movie that, like you're saying, Hank, doesn't give us enough information to let us fully make sense of it, like, as as it shouldn't. It also, with, with regards to atmosphere, one thing that builds atmosphere is reaction shots. It actually shows you less than you think, just like in Jaws, you don't see the shark that much. If you watch back the exorcist from a perspective of every time we, you know, we rush up those stairs and we rush towards the door of her room, when the door is opened, we then cut to Ellen's face and her reaction. Most of this film is reactions, and that's why it feels so atmospheric. We don't need to see all those horror moments of things like the spider walk down the stairs, although that brings a levity. Actually, interestingly, that I do know, of course, you probably already assume I know exactly why this was cut. Um, there exactly. was, it, was cut for two, it was cut for two reasons. Number one is because, you know, from a horror perspective, it was seen as, you know, one step too many, but mainly it was cut because that's when they find out Burke died. And if you ask an actor to react to your best friend dying and then turn and see something horrific that you've got, there's nowhere to go. You've got two crescendos in one scene. So, and in fact, actually there was a great conversation between um, 
Blatty and Friedkin about knowing what they should have done to that scene and how they should have cut it in hindsight but obviously it's far too late now but yeah that's such a beautiful moment and i actually prefer it what happens when reagan gets at the bottom of the stairs when she actually tries to attack them rather than just running down the stairs because i think running down the stairs it's just probably just been oversaturated over the years right yeah there, there are two versions of that right one of them she runs down the stairs and kind of chases around one of the, yeah. the guests i think i saw and then there's another one where she just opens her mouth and just blood kind of pours out of it right am i getting that right yeah wow. so yeah exactly and i think these these are the point is actually less is more the fact that we mm -hmm. don't see right. certain things we are forced to reimagine re them ourselves that's why reaction shots work so well and we did take that into the offering just as much it's so much nicer to not see the thing but feel like you did there are right. so many great horror examples where you know you say oh do you remember this beat in this film and people say yes and say you never actually see anything michael hanneke's funny games is the perfect example you never see any violence but my God, do you feel like you do? And this is, you know, never The Exorcist that. is a great example of that. Yeah, yeah I mean, you never, you never see them get shot. You never see them get hit. I'm talking about the the lead characters, not the the shotgun moment. No spoilers, right. but we're not talking about that. We're talking about The Exorcist. No, but this this is this is great. This is why we invited director on because uh, that that's a really cool catch that I didn't notice with The Exorcist. All the reaction shots. I mean, well, the yeah. performances are so good. Like Ellen Burstyn, like. Ellen Burstyn shocked and, and, you know, I know late Ellen Burstyn, you know, I was introduced to her for Requiem for a Dream and like her performance there is just as riveting here. If, you know, this is like, you know, next level and, you know, Linda Blair is this tortured child, like hearing this child, like scream and then like such a fragile child, then transform into this like growling feral demon. It's like frightening, you know? And we can't also, as far as, you know, we're talking about, you know, demons concerned, I think, you know, Mercedes McCambridge, who actually plays the demon, I think, right. you know, you can't talk about The Exorcist without, you know, mentioning what an incredible job, you know, it's, it's her voice that drives that and the things she could do with her throat and the things that, in fact, actually interesting fact about our movie, the voice of the demon, both when it talks in the opening scene and the kind of the growls that it does, there's many voices layered in there, and I, I, mine is in there as well, as oh, is nice. Hank's. We were all playing with the idea of what is this demon going to sound like. Right. We were all doing kind of Mercedes-esque things uh -huh. under the Mercedes. One of the things she did to try and find the voice of the demon was she swallowed raw eggs. She smoked like crazy. She got off the wagon and she drank and drank and drank. She did everything she could to utilize her voice, and she was using her bronchitis to actually give us that sound that we hear. And the... Other incredible fact, one of my favorite parts of the movie is at one point in the background, and I did this on the offering, there were times where the, so first off, when we started shooting, I said to the actors, do you mind if I scare you for real? And I wanted to get them in the headspace that they, they had a choice. They both said yes, but at not one point did I ever actually scare them because I didn't need to, because ultimately their, their atmosphere, you know, their kind of fear was heightened already. So good, but right. One thing I did do occasionally at the end of a scene when there was going to be a, a jump scare, the camera scare is a good example where Claire, uh, played by M. Wiseman, hears that kind of crackle noise. I was actually just off camera next to this plant in the corner of the room and I made just this hideous kind of inward crackle to make her jump for real. So they are real jumps. Oh, wow. um, but uh, Friedkin did the same thing. He was 
to create atmosphere on set, they played lots of different sounds and he would actually breathe inwards and do all these very strange sounds to um, to creep the actors out. And some of that was also used in the footage, especially when Karras is listening back to the audio and plays it reverse. Right, That's right. actually Friedkin's voice. The father Karras to me embodied holiness. And to say that holiness, if you humanize it, involves doubt and involves lulls in your spirituality and involves moments where you feel like a hypocrite, involves moments where you have guilt. It has all these all these humanistic qualities that we don't classically imagine a holy man to be because in classic uh, religious literature, the holy men are like supermen. Like they always have faith or they're unshaken. They're, they're constantly role models. But the truth is a real holy man is, is, is someone that grapples with the integrity of their feelings and strives to do the right thing and is not given clear cut answers. And so off what Ollie had said before, I was very moved when he threw the tap water that he told the demon was holy water, then left the room and said that was tap water. And I went, that is such a beautiful idea. Poor Father Karras can't see that he's so holy that he can have tap water and it becomes holy when he uses nice. it. Nice. I like that. And 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 I think without ruining where you want to take the end of the exorcist, because you're going in chunks, but I, I this still pays off though, so I have to mention it. At the end of the film, when he's asked to give his last rites, about you lived a life of sin, you you know you, you want forgiveness or whatever. The audience always interacts with good movies, so there's no way the audience isn't thinking when he says you lived a life of sin. They're thinking, no, he didn't. He was good. He has nothing to say sorry for. And so he really was. This really was the journey of a holy man. And you needed the the juxtaposition with darkness to show how bright his light was. And I just love that. I mean, it's just, I mean, it just goes back to character and it goes back to emotion and it transcends just horror. And it just has to do with just good storytelling in general. Horror is just an accoutrement. It's a spice that's applied to the main substance of of what really is characters and the human condition. And that's why I think this is, it's, it's a masterpiece. It really is. It still works because it's honest. This film really uh, thrives on the depth there and, and, you know, how much harder it is when we actually start to see people die. Well, I mean, we've seen it already, but our, our main characters. So why don't I get us through to the end there? You Take us home, Harry. I'll, uh, we'll get to the eponymous exorcist and uh, exorcism and, uh, you know, get through the end of the film. So Father Marin, like we mentioned, you know, he, he arrives at the house and the first thing he does is he warns Father Karras that a demon uses psychological attack and he should try his best to ignore what it, what it says. So as the priests read from the Roman ritual, the demon curses them and it specifically starts to focus on Father Karras verbally attacking his loss of faith and his guilt over the circumstances of his mother's death. And, you know, a lot of the ways that we mentioned, the demon pretends to be Karis's mother and it overwhelms him so much that Father Marin tells him, you need to take a break and step outside. When he ultimately returns to the room, he finds Father Marin is dead and uh, he finds him dead. And so Father Karis, he decides to beat up the possessed Reagan and demands that the demon take him instead. The demon rips a medallion of St. Joseph from Father Karis's neck and begins to possess him, freeing Reagan. Father Karras then hurls himself out the window, tumbling down the stairs outside and, and dying. Reagan is freed from her possession and we learn doesn't remember anything that happened. But as the McNeils leave Georgetown, uh, Chris gives Dyer the uh, the medallion that was found in Reagan's room. And that's where the film ends. And I, I know that there's a lot of details in the actual exorcism that if you guys want to talk about, feel free to mention. But that's kind of brings us to the end and the uh, the noble sacrifice brought on by Father Karras. 
Well, what I what I love about this is that you're bringing in a detective into the subplot. And I just love that the detective represents like the apotheosis of intelligence and being able to read through the bullshit and really understand what really happened. And he's just hit just off his reaction shot. The audience is like, go ahead. Good luck. <laughs> like, good luck making sense of this crime scene. Right. And 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 that that to me is just so beautiful because you cannot make sense of true horror. And they needed a character to represent that. And so I really love that they brought him in because the truth be told, you don't really need him for the story. I mean, I don't think he has, he doesn't really move the plot at all. You could cut it and I don't think you'd have less of an experience, but I just love that they danced around this theme, this theme of, of, of the futility of intelligence will always necessitate ritual. As long as you can't fully make sense of something, then you need some ritual. And I'm going to quote Chabad now because I can't talk about Judaism without Chabad, which is, you know. This is Jews on film. It's okay. Okay. So to my fellow Chabadniks, as the Rebbe says, he he says there's the rational mind and then there's the supra-rational mind. And which suggests that ritual is rational. There's a supra-rational quality to it. And in Judaism... It's so like if you look at halachas in Jewish law, you'd think they're engineers trying to set off the right incantation and trying to set off the right like, you know, circuitry to like unleash something, some soul inside of you. And so I I love that the ritualization in the exorcist is is something that if it was in less if it were in the hands of lesser filmmakers would have looked silly. It would have looked like a bunch of guys just doing like summer camp rituals, you know, you know, at, at this foul mouth kind of hovering kid. But it doesn't feel that way. It actually feels like this is why we still need a ritual. There's something that honors the sacred and still at the same time was designed just to be entertainment. But it, it transcends that. And so that's really difficult to pull off. Because the spectrum from cheesy to riveting is so easy to swing that pendulum if you're not really measured with your performances, with your camera angles, with your cutting, with your music, etc. And it really is a testament to what a balancing act the entire creative team of The Exorcist had to achieve to really pull this off. Because ritual, like I can, like in our film, it's really scary to be like, okay, so this needs to climax with someone just like reading words, how is that going to feel emotional? It's just, it, it feels so abstract. And so to concretize it into the, this human, this human condition that feels universal. Uh, I mean, really that, that to me is the, the uh, that's where I see the exorcist as a film that set the prototypical standard for all the films that followed. Because when they work and when they don't work, always just culminate, culminates, in my opinion, at when finally holiness has to confront evil. One thing that's worth calling out, you know, Harry, you did a beautiful job reading, you know, our last chunk, but it doesn't quite capture that cinematic showdown moment. You know, sure. I think, you know, the shutters are are swinging back and forth. We have like plates flying or all sorts of detritus flying all over the place and reagan is like at her most intense i think she's at this point she's ripped off her restraints she's gotten out of bed it's it's very chaotic and they're like screaming over her growling they're reading these these roman rituals 
it's very hectic. It's very intense. When Father Karras finally realizes what he has to do, it, it's a tough moment as a viewer because you followed this person who's like been struggling and, you know, has been feeling guilty and conflicted the whole time. And he realizes what he has to do, you know, to save Reagan's life. And he just does it. And it's hard to watch for sure. That's when his life finally, I think, had meaning. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Realizes everything he went through. And in mythic structure, you have four actual beats that make up mythic structure. You have the orphan stage, the wanderer stage, the warrior, and then the martyr. Mm -hmm. Right. So you always need martyrdom at the end. Where it gets tricky when you're doing horror, which is a really nifty, like this is what I look at when I watch horror. And I look at a lot of things. But one thing that I always find fascinating as a writer is I'm like, why? The question that you should ask is, why can't the demon just kill everyone within three minutes of your movie? Right. Yeah. How can you rationalize the progressive complications and how can you prevent a diminishing return where it feels like the stakes are rising and the demon's power is getting stronger? When in reality, the first time in The Exorcist that the demon meets Father Karras, he could like make a deal. <laughs> like he could totally pull off a trade. I think Father Karras is already primed to like do a swap and, and, and save this kid. He's he, the guy's pseudo suicidal. His life is miserable. Right. And he's sure. a yeah. man. But that's where the brilliance of The Exorcist kicks in. It couldn't happen yet. He needed the the uh, Max von Sydow character to come as well. It wasn't appropriate to unleash that power yet. He needed everyone together so he could hatch the master plan. And when you reverse engineer all the plotting from the ma that master plan, then the demon's plot justifies the story's plot. And that's kind of where I geek out on that moment. This was our discussion of the film The Exorcist. We're going to take a quick break. We will come back and rate the film on a scale of one to five stars of David. And then I would love to hear a little bit more about the offering. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Oliver Park and Hank Hoffman to rate the film The Exorcist on a scale of one to five stars of David. Oliver. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and just keep it. No, just keep in mind this is not a ranking on the quality of the film, which I think we'd all agree is very high. But specifically the Jewishness, which um, it will be an interesting challenge this week in a, in a movie that's so Catholic. But like right. we said, there's a lot of crossovers, so would love this to hear your thoughts. Yeah, okay. So I, I need to know what makes a Jewish film before I'm able to actually do this. Quality-wise, it's obviously a six out of five. Right. Sure. But supernaturally good. What? Well, yeah, I mean everything. But what? What exactly makes a film Jewish? Our simple rubric is cast and crew, content and themes. So if you kind of look at that loosely, again, this is a podcast. This is not it is not going to be recorded in history books or whatever. So this is loose. It's have fun with it. Whatever you think, uh, there's no wrong answers. Okay. Okay. Well, then I would say I would say from a Jewish perspective, it would definitely rank quite highly because it leaves unanswered questions. It forces you to ask those questions, and I think that's what. That's well. There were two things from doing the offering and from not being Jewish and from you know being around Hank and and Jonathan Younger, the producers, and everyone else who are who are Jewish, very Jewish, I might add, in a good way. The one thing I learned what Judaism means to me from an outsider's perspective, to sum it up in one word, is family. And I would one hundred percent look at The Exorcist as a family of people that came together to fight something and to ask questions and to allow people to ask questions as well, not just saying, this is the word of God, this is how it is. No one says that in The Exorcist. And that's also quite rare from a possession movie from, from the perspective of a Christian movie. So 
I would say from that perspective, it's very high. I would say five. But wow. I don't know how many of the cast and crew were Jewish, so I can't say it from that perspective. I don't know. That's a very good question. Yeah. I, I no, but I, I I really appreciate that read on it. You know, I was going to say something similar just to jump in. You know, it, it's not going to make it to a five for me. I'll, I'll give that away at the top just because that that's been a high bar. If you listen to some older episodes, that few movies have crossed, and surely not one that doesn't even mention anything Jewish. Although I do think thematically, everything that you're touching on, like these questions of faith, these questions of the unknown, these questions of, you know, making sense of something and the way that everyone is critical. I mean, it does feel very Talmudic and it does feel very faith-based. You know, I, I've said this before on past podcasts that I think I can connect more to movies that are explicitly Christian sometimes than I can to a movie that doesn't deal in religion, you know, even as someone Jewish, because there is so much overlap in that experience. And I, I saw a lot of that in these questions of faith. I saw a lot of the same themes that I think I found in the offering that were, that were happening here. So, you know, my rating... Again, in, in good conscience, I can't give this up in the fours and fives just because compared to some of the really Jewish movies we might have covered in the past, it doesn't hold up all the way there. But <laughs> I need to know it. what you mean by a Jewish <laughs> I need to know what you mean by what is a Jewish film. Very, very fair. Like The Offering, for example, you know, thematically, I think there's a lot there, but it definitely gets, you know, one to two points, let's say, over The Exorcist, just because in its content, it really right. does feature and explore the Jewishness of a lot of its characters. So I think The Exorcist, Again, more than a lot of movies because of how deeply, you know, rooted in, in religion it is and because of as a Jewish viewer, how much I was able to kind of mine that I'm giving it some credit. I think a surprising, I'll call it a three stars, you know, a surprising three stars for a movie that's not explicitly Jewish. But um, but I guess just the, the lack of Jewish content as, as we've come to define it, Daniel and I, um, is, is why I can't give it, you know, the four and fives. But I'll let you change your answer, your answer, Oliver, or if you want to keep the five, like this is your first episode, you can leave your mark and you know, it can be a five. <laughs> I can only look at it from the perspective of, you know, it raises those questions of what I've learned about Judaism from doing my movie. So I think if we're looking at cast and group, we're looking at story, if we're looking at things that are investigated within the movie, obviously it's going to lose some marks there. But I would like to just go all in and just say, no, it raises questions. It stands the test of time. It's so strong. It's, you know, caked in, sorry, baked in, you know, these, these rich layers that just are too strong to not give this five stars on every level. Three to five, three out of five stars is uh is surprising to me, but I think that's where I want to leave off fair, with this fair. film. But what what do you think about it, uh, Hank? How how Jewish would you say this film is on a scale of one to five stars of David? I think it's a hilarious question and an important question because you have to start with how Jewish is Christianity or how Jewish is Catholicism. Ooh, going back, going back. Well, so like I'm going to say that point. Catholicism is probably a four to five in Judaism because uh, Jesus was Jewish. It all came from the Torah. Th there is no Catholic conversation without a Torah foundation. So you, you you have to factor that in. And then the other thing you have to factor in, which is that it's a movie. So you got to combine two things. It's a movie and it's dealing with Catholicism. Catholicism already, I think, is a four to five in Judaism because we agree on almost everything. And then that extra star is where things get funny. The other thing is because it's a movie. Well, I think movies are the most Jewish thing ever. The structure of film, which is kind of cool if you think about it, is every weekend there's story of the weekend, mm -hmm. movie of the week or movie of the weekend. Well, Judaism is Parsha to Shavua. What's right, the story right. of the week? What's the story of the weekend? It's Love the same it. structure. And then you have Hollywood that was built by a bunch of uh, curmudgeon Jews. And so you're dealing with 
such a Jewish medium, such a Jewish appreciation for literature and storytelling to drive kind of the conversation of the week. And then you're dealing with the subject of, of faith and religious faith and Catholic faith, which is an offshoot of Jewish faith. So in that respect, I think it's heavily Jewish. Um, the outer layer isn't, but you're dealing with a lot of, uh, I get a lot of Jewish vibes. Having said that, because it departs from, I think, the fundamental belief in Judaism that the faith is not enough. Judaism does not believe that if you if you have faith, you've achieved sanctity. Judaism is about behaviorisms. If you look at the Torah, it really chronicles beha human behaviorism in the face of uh, um, spiritual crisis more than it explores the behavior of God. And I think that Catholicism is more about the behavior of Jesus and what would Jesus do? A Jewish education is what would Moshe Rabbeinu do? What would Avram do? What would the great Siddiquim do? And how do you emulate them? It's never what would God do? So because of that, I can't give it five stars. I would give it four to five stars. And I also think that if you had taken, and my proof of this also is if you had taken that movie and swapped every cross with a mug and David and swapped Father Karras and just made him a shaliach, right? <laughs> and just run the script. Right. So think about how much of the screenplay I've changed now. It's really just a couple words here and there. I changed a few nouns. The whole script could actually run and you would say, what a Jewish movie. So I think it is deceptively more Jewish than it appears. So nice. four to five Jewish stars. All right. Well, I'm going to have to be Hank, one of those curmudgeonly old Jews who's going to maybe rate it a, a bit differently than everyone else so far. You know, I'm probably speaking a little bit on the like stretch level, right? So we're talking about Father Karras's Italian mother, very much for me summoned this sort of like Jewish mother vibe where like he has a very strong connection to his mom. At some point, Father Marin asks Chris whether her daughter has a middle name. And so I found this fun fact online. In the Middle Ages, Catholics used to give their children several names as they believed it would hinder demons from finding out the child's real name. And similar tradition, there's a lot of, uh, at least I know that on my, my wife's side, her father had like an illness growing up and Jews would sometimes rename their children after like a serious illness. So for me, there's like that sort of stretch connection of, of maybe, you know, changing names and things like that. Uh, Burke at some point calls the waiter a Nazi bastard. So there's that. There's loose, loose connections to like very, you know, little threads here and there. The, the faith element certainly adds a lot for, for me. I'll probably go like two and a half stars which is not at all to say that the quality of the film is two and a half stars. I just felt like the Jewishness here, uh, maybe two and a half or maybe three, you know, after hearing what everyone has said so far, I feel like it's, it's a, a more spiritual religious film and, you know, talking about everything today was like so incredible to kind of re re-examine the film through this Jewish lens, through this faith-based lens. And I really appreciate uh, Hank and, and you, Oliver, for taking the time to, to be here today to talk to us about it. Thank you so much. Of course. I wanted to ask uh, Hank and Oliver, is there a, what can you tell us about the offering? Where can someone uh, watch the film right now? So if you want to watch the offering, which we urge you to watch, it is, first of all, it's in the 90s on Rotten Tomatoes. The critics seem to love it. Fans seem to be really enjoying it. 
It's top 10 on iTunes and it's trending beautifully. So you can watch it on iTunes. You can watch it anywhere you could get video on demand. So that would be Vudu, Amazon, Google, or Apple TV. If you have Apple TV, I recommend doing it on Apple TV. I just think it's much easier to set up. And my only request is turn off the lights, put your phone down. And when you watch a movie with your phone next to you, and you, or when you watch a movie and you put your phone away, you're getting a wildly different experience. Absolutely. That's sort of one of the the curses of this podcast is nowadays when I'm watching a movie, I'm like frantically typing notes into my iPad as I'm watching it, which sort of detracts from the experience. But I think I should maybe try it out what you're suggesting, Hank, and do it with phone, without devices and kind of really, you know, jump into the experience of it all. But, in my uh, home, in my home, I'm always uh, chastising my wife and kid when we watch a movie. They'll be on their phone. I'd be like, were you on your phone? Yeah. Like, were you on your phone? They're like, I'm not. I was just quickly, I wasn't doing anything. And then I'll quiz them on what just happened in the movie. And they never get it right. So I know they're missing stuff. I know everyone's missing stuff. I should also say this movie's in over 40 countries. Wow. Around the world, Baruch Hashem. And so it depends where your listeners are. If you're in Israel, for example, it's going to be theatrical around Purim time in mid-March. If you're in the UK, I believe it comes out mid-February. Same thing for Australia. Uh, it It's in theaters in France. Uh, it had a nice day. It's actually, I think, number six or number seven on the charts in France. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, so it really depends. But for the American listeners, uh, theatrical run just ended, but you can get it any anywhere you can get VOD from. Anywhere you get your video on demand from, it's available for rent or for purchase. Fantastic. And uh, can you say at this time, are you, uh, is there anything folks can look forward to, uh, you know, anything coming down the pike from, from Hank and Ollie that you guys want to plug publicly on the uh, podcast? I, I can't tell you what I'm working on. I can just tell you this is not the end of Jewish themed horror and genre. This is just the beginning. And we're very excited by the numbers we're seeing, which allows us to do more of it. Awesome. Well, if you ever want to do like a horror film starring two Jewish podcasters who get like, you know, possessed by demons, please give us a call. You know, after our conversation, I'm not going to lie, I, I do love this idea of what happens when like a rival rabbi and priest get the same gig. Yeah. I just think their relationship over the course of the film would provide such a fascinating thematic kind of uh, riff between them. Just the way they would argue about how to handle totally. it. Love it. And I just love the idea that deep down they may be agreeing on more than they realize. And maybe it's got that like coexist bumper sticker. You know, those ones that has like the cross and the star and the moon. And anyway. Yeah, it's a total coexist. But then, of course, it's a horror movie, so we'll kill all of them. But they're they're better for it, don't worry. Absolutely. Oliver Park and Hank Hoffman, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you guys. I can't wait to speak with you more in the future about the offering or about religion, horror, horror in, in general. It's been so much fun. And I'm so, so glad that you guys like the offering. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. And I, I just, you. I didn't, I'm in, I was remiss to mention it up front, but you are the first uh, non-Jew on the podcast. What a huge honor for you uh, to be on our podcast. This is unbelievable. You know, you've broken the seal. The floodgates are open. All are welcome on the podcast. And it was really such a pleasure to talk to you about this film. And I encourage everyone to go check it out. As far as Jews on Film listeners, please, you know, 
subscribe and like us on all the platforms. We're on Instagram, we're on TikTok, we're on YouTube, on Twitter. You can email us with some suggestions for some horror films or some other films you'd like us to cover at JewsOnFilmPod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate it and have a good one. Bye-bye. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel and Harry edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.